about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Father, we do ask that you would be with us this evening and speak to us through your word. And we pray that as we come to finish uh, our series in Acts, that you would powerfully remind us uh, of how good it is to know your son Jesus as we hear about Stephen. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Now, obviously, uh, we won't tonight finish Acts. You may know we've got about 20 chapters to go. Uh, That would make for a long sermon. But uh, this is where we're going to finish for now. And we finish with an incredibly powerful, if disturbing, moment. The stoning of Stephen. The martyrdom of Stephen. Uh, This event in Acts 6 and 7 is the single longest event yet in the book of Acts. And it is recorded in great detail because it was a moment of profound significance for the earliest church. Marking a turning point. Before this moment, it might have seemed to many among the early Christian community in Jerusalem, it might have seemed that before long, everyone would come around. Uh, The Jewish people would flock one and all to their Messiah. Even though they were putting up some resistance at this point, eventually they would turn, surely, and their fellow Israelites would join with them and, and come to worship Jesus. But all this changed with the event we're about to consider, the stoning of Stephen. This event was a profound wake-up call for the first church, kind of waking them up to the grim reality of people's unwillingness to come around, waking them up to the horrible possibility of people pitting themselves permanently against Jesus the Messiah. And it's a wake-up call for us too. Though we are mostly not Jews and our context is different, this event should wake us up just as much as it did them to the realities of Christian faith in this world. It's a moment where the shape and and the, the contours of Christian faith come into sharp focus, sweeping away illusions and forcing us to consider where we really stand. Can I invite you to come with us as we consider this moment this evening? Uh, We're going to first witness the event, listening to Acts 6 and 7, and I'm going to draw a few conclusions for us today. So, love you to have your Bible open there at Acts chapter 6. There's Bibles in the pews. Hope you can see one. You might have one on your phone. Acts chapter 6, we're going to start from verse 8. Can somebody call out a page number for the pew Bibles? 1083. There you go. Uh, First, let's hear what's happened, okay? Um, Last week, we were introduced to Stephen as one of the seven chosen to assist in the leadership of the church and the distribution of food. Might seem like a small deal, but it was a big deal in the first church. The details are in verses 1 to 7 of chapter 6. And now we hear Stephen's story from verse 8. Now, Stephen... A man full of grace, God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against 
his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Everything about this looks like it's fixed from the outset. All fixed up. Uh, whatever else this will turn out to be, it will be a grave miscarriage of justice. I think it also ought to remind us, it probably does you, of what happened to Jesus. How he too had charges made up and witnesses paid off. This is not the only place in this passage, actually, we'll see, in which Stephen will remind us of Jesus. Um, Though he was a man like any of us, a sinner, not perfect, in his last moments, he's given the privilege of being very like his Lord and King. Okay, we're in chapter 7. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? Now, I've asked my brother David to help us with Stephen's speech. Uh, Here he comes. He's the one who looks like me, Um, but much younger. (laughs) He will read a bit of the passage, and then I'll make some comments to help us uh, understand what's going on. Love you to follow along from verse 2. Okay, the high priest asked him, are these charges true? To this, Stephen replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterwards, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. So Stephen begins his defence by starting to tell the story of the Jews, the story of the Old Testament. Uh, Some of us have been doing the Promise to Fulfillment course, and I hope you kind of recognise this bit, although, as we'll see, he doesn't quite play it out in the detail we have been. Um, But he begins with Abraham, the founding father of Israel, summarising the story of the book of Genesis and how Abraham had to depend on the promise of God in the face of difficulty and opposition. Uh, We're going to spend some time in the next few weeks looking at Abraham. Hope you can be here for that. Uh, But Stephen goes pretty quickly, and then he continues in verse 8. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. 
because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Sechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Sechem for a certain sum of money. As Stephen continues recounting the history of Genesis, uh, his speech kind of seems pretty matter-of-fact. You kind of feel like, you know, maybe were they sitting there going, yeah, get to the point, mate. Uh, but there is actually some, something subtle going on here. Stephen is drawing attention to one feature of the story in particular, the way the hero of God's people is persecuted by his own people. Uh, The patriarchs were jealous and they sold Joseph, but it was actually through that that God provided for them. Stephen draws special attention uh, to the fact that those who sold Joseph are our fathers. We'll see that come up a few more times. Let's see where he's taking this. Verse 17. At the time, as the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king, who knew nothing about Joseph, became ruler of Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born. And he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defence and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Here Stephen is beginning the story of Moses from the book of Exodus, uh, which I hope some of us recognise from our previous sermon series. Um, Again, do you see the subtle theme of God's chosen hero being rejected by his people? Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him. That's what Stephen said. That's kind of a provocative way of putting it, don't you think? That's not actually in the text of Exodus, those exact words, but Stephen's really pushing them on this. Let's keep going. Verse 29. When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. 
I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. The one they rejected becomes God's own chosen means of deliverance. This is his theme. So far, though, Stephen has made this point fairly subtly. But now in what follows, he ramps it up a bit. Verse 37. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honour of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your god Raphan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Stephen is not throwing things in a particularly good light. There might be other ways you could tell the Old Testament story that would sound a bit more positive than this. He's focusing on the failures that, as he puts it, our fathers committed. And yet, no one can deny that this is basically a true retelling of the Old Testament story. Finally, Stevens focuses in on this issue of the tabernacle and the temple, which seems to have been at the centre of the charges laid against him. Verse 45 there. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? What's going on here? Um, This is a really, really potted overview of the history of the temple. Uh, It began as a tabernacle, a tent, and finally Solomon built it into a temple. But then Stephen concludes this potted history with a quotation from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah 66, which implies not only that God didn't literally live in a temple, actually that much was kind of standard theology, uh, but it implies that the temple was actually kind of irrelevant. 
Uh, in fact, if you know the whole of Isaiah 66, uh, which is where the, this quote comes from, and, and Stephen's hearers definitely would have known that text, the point is even stronger. God basically says, stuff the temple, why don't you get on with obedience? And all this leads Stephen to a stinging conclusion. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Not as subtle. You are just like your fathers, the ones, that is, he's just described, the ones who were jealous of Joseph and who rejected Moses and who the prophets denounced. Like, these are seriously heavy-duty ap- accusations. And the nail in the coffin, so to speak, is their involvement in the murder of Jesus, the righteous one, the one the prophets predicted, who Moses predicted, the prophet like him, Well, it's no wonder what happened. Verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. In death, somehow, Stephen is brought closer to Jesus than he has ever been. He is allowed to behold his Lord standing at the right hand of God as the stones begin to strike him. And please, we really need to appreciate the violence of this moment. They pull him out of the city and then they just find rocks. Like stoning, it was really awful. They, they pull him out and they pick up rocks and they start belting him until he goes unconscious and is dead. They're shouting. It's vicious. But as the stones begin to strike him, he is assured that Jesus is indeed Lord and that even this situation is no threat to him. Jesus is there standing at the right hand of God, exalted, on heaven's throne. Stephen knows that his faith is right and good even in that moment. And so he is able to pray just like Jesus did for the people attacking him. This is the man from whom this church is named. St. Stephen's Newtown. So as we come to the end of this sermon and the end of our series on the book of Acts, let's ask... What should it mean to bear that name? What should it mean to bear that name? 
What would it look like to be true to the name of Stephen? Let me suggest three things that Stephen's witness reminds us of. First, sometimes love cannot avoid conflict. Second, being a Christian does not always make your life better in the present. And third, there are things worth giving everything for. First, Stephen reminds us that sometimes love cannot avoid conflict. What do I mean? Stephen's witness here, his speech, is above all an act of love. Why? Because what Stephen does here is that he he speaks the truth. Even though it costs him everything. Love, you see, speaks the truth. This is not a particularly popular claim today, but of course it is true. There can be no true love where there are lies and where deception is tolerated, where destructive mistakes are not brought to attention. Love, the Bible teaches, rejoices in the truth. I don't mean that there's nothing to love other than speaking the truth, right? Love is not about just being a kind of forthright jerk. But love must speak the truth. And sometimes that is all that love can do. When Stephen declares that his hearers are stiff-necked and have uncircumcised hearts and ears, he is in fact loving them. Because he's telling them what they actually need to hear, though they may not want to. The terrible, hard truth that it is their only hope to take on board. Indeed, there is no doubt that from the beginning to the end, he has their best interest at heart. As he dies for them, he prays for their forgiveness. Could you have done that? This is why he resembles Jesus so much here. Because his death is an act of love. He refuses to deny them the chance to hear the truth, even though it costs them It costs him his life. He refuses to deny them the chance to hear the truth even though it costs him his life. In fact, that's actually central to understanding martyrdom in the Christian tradition. Martyrdom, that is being killed for your faith, is for Christians an act of love because it is a refusal to save your life by withholding the truth. I'll say that again. It's a refusal to save your life by holding back the truth. Sometimes love cannot avoid conflict. This is something we need to know deeply. It's not, of course, that we seek conflict, and the early church didn't do that either, but they didn't avoid conflict at all costs because that would have been a failure of love. You see, the fact is that it was a terrible thing for those people to reject the Messiah. And it is still a terrible thing for people to reject the Messiah. Sometimes love requires us to speak truths that upset people and that anger people. We need to know this deep in our bones. You see, everyone is not going to come around. If the Jews rejected Jesus... 
those who had the law and the prophets, who were waiting for the Messiah. If they rejected him, then others will. And the fact is, friends, we have difficult things to say to the world, to those around us, but it is not loving to conceal them. We must not make the mistake of confusing civility and harmony with love. The gospel of Jesus brings an announcement in the world that is deeply critical and painful and challenging. And love requires that we proclaim this message and not just keep the peace. Now, of course, we need to do that carefully and respectfully. The Bible speaks about respectfulness, gentleness, humility, and mostly pursuing those things will mean that there isn't conflict but we can't afford to assume that conflict will not arise. Which is why, secondly, Stephen reminds us that being a Christian does not always make your life better. In fact, sometimes being a Christian will mean suffering. Because you see, when conflict arises, we have no recourse to violence as a way to avoid suffering. That's just not the way Jesus' people are allowed to operate. Not by the sword. We don't, as Jesus put it, we don't resist an evildoer. We refuse to use whatever means we can to avoid suffering and things going badly for us. Stephen reminds us that the fact is that sometimes being a Christian with integrity will mean suffering. Now, not many of us, I'm sure, will have to face death. Almost certainly not any of us. Yet, we should be careful to see that we actually have no guarantee of that. You can have no guarantee that being a Christian will not cost you your life. Let me ask you, have you ever paused to register that? That being a Christian could cost you your life. And, and not if there's a mistake, but if everything's going right. If your life, and if, if it could cost you your life, then how much more other things, relationships, friends, wealth, jobs, status, security. We shouldn't be under illusions. Stephen, we're told, was full of the Holy Spirit at this moment, right? This is, this is my point. This wasn't a failure, of Christian discipleship. It wasn't a, a moment where he got it wrong as a Christian. It was a moment where he got it just right. It wasn't a moment where God was far away. It was a, a moment where God was incredibly close, where he shows what it means to be a Christian, and this happened to him. And if that happened to him, then we ought to know deeply that sometimes being a follower of Jesus could mean suffering. We need to register this because sometimes people in churches speak as if the whole point of being a Christian is that it improves your life here and now. It makes life more fulfilling or perhaps fills it with blessing. Uh, the language of blessing is used a lot in this kind of idea, uh, which is a shame because it's Bible language and, and we need to be careful. There's no doubt that there are rich blessings for those who trust in Jesus Ephesians says that we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And it's also true that Jesus promises those who trust him life to the full. 
But we need to not have illusions about what that actually means. It does not mean life here and now going as well and as we want it to and taking the ideal shape. It doesn't mean that we will be happy, happy and wealthy and sexually fulfilled and interesting. It doesn't mean that we'll be spared suffering. In fact, the opposite. If Stephen is any guide, and he should be, the way of blessing leads through suffering, not around it. Which leads us to our third point that Stephen reminds us of, which is that there are things worth giving everything for. Or at least, there is someone worth giving everything to. In his last moments, it doesn't seem to me like Stephen regrets his decision to stand up for Jesus. There is a great sense of clarity and peace in the description, isn't there? Stephen himself almost seems to shine with the glory he is given to behold as he looks and sees Jesus standing at God's right hand. He hasn't made a mistake in being willing to die for Jesus. Rather, the rightness of this is what gives him the beauty he has in this passage. His face was like the face of an angel. Wonderfully, weirdly evocative phrase, don't you think? And so when he prays in his last moments, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, we know he's not a fool. He has seen things clearly. Jesus is worth giving our lives for. And to lose him is worse than death. There is a great contrast here between Stephen and those who kill him. Can I ask you, who do you really believe is better off? Is it those who save their lives but take his, gnashing their teeth in fury and losing themselves in violence, putting themselves even further from God and his purposes? Or is it Stephen, who loses his life but comes closer than anyone has ever come to Jesus as, as heaven opens upon him in glory and acknowledgement and Jesus himself stands up in support. It can seem ridiculous to think that it would be better to die. Yet it's worth remembering that the, the other person named in this passage, Saul, at whose feet the witnesses lay their cloaks, he later came to see that Stephen was the one to be envied here. He came to see it, of course, because Stephen's prayer that the Lord not hold their sins against them was answered for him in his conversion. Jesus is worth dying for. He who is what the whole of God's story, the story of Israel, was leading up to. Jesus, who is what the tabernacle and the law and the prophets were all about. Jesus, who is at the, at the right hand of God, the King in glory, who gave himself for us and rose again. When the clutter of our lives is cleared away and we can see how things really stand, then we see that to have Jesus is better than life. 
And friends, if he's worth dying for, then he's worth living for. You won't regret giving Jesus everything. That's what Stephen shows us. You won't regret playing to him as your only audience. That's what is it really beautiful about Stephen here. He's playing to an audience of one. He cares about what Jesus thinks of him. Many of us may have various doubts of different kinds, but when everything becomes clear, like it does with Stephen here, we will know that Jesus was worth it. He was worth the sacrifices and the struggle, the costs and the challenges. He is worth dying for. He is worth living for. So in conclusion then, and in conclusion to our series in Acts, as those who belong to a church that bears Stephen's name, can I urge you all to just be inspired by his example? Inspired to a love that is willing to speak even difficult truths. Inspired to a Christian faith that is not obsessed with temporary blessings. But knows that following Jesus is costly. And above all, inspired to live and finally to die for Jesus. Seeking his face. Knowing that he will be worth it. And maybe then we too will share something of Stephen's beauty. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the faithful witness of your servant Stephen. Who in this passage looks incredibly heroic and bold and amazing, but who we know was a real normal person, gripped by your spirit with love for Jesus. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us something of his faith and clarity and courage and love, that we may bear witness faithfully to Jesus, seek his face, and live before his judgment above all things. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.